Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. You're listening to The Jam Price Show, all about movies. And today, my guest is Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Stephen Rosenbaum. And we're going to be talking about his brand new documentary entitled The Outsider. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. There's so much to get into about this film. So our audience knows a little bit. Do you want to give a brief synopsis of what The Outsider is all about? Absolutely. So my wife and I are filmmaking partners We've done five companies together. We've made a lot of films. This is a film we stumbled into. We made a rather large donation to the then non-existent uh, museum that was being built in New York. And part of the arrangement we made was that if we donated an archive that we had to this museum, that they would let us film the story. And this is the National 9-11 Memorial. And for those of you who know the mechanics of of longitudinal documentary filmmaking, often where you begin is not where you expect to end. Um, And we ended up in a very different place. And the outsider is our protagonist character, Michael Shulin. And, you know, there's so many, you know, the way you did this was so interesting. You know, there is a lot of in there going, but what made you decide to choose Michael Shulin? Because it sounded like there were a lot of different, you filmed this over what, seven years or longer? Seven years. Seven years. 70 hours of footage. A lot of time. Um, so I don't think we chose him. I think the universe chose him. Um, when we were done shooting, we started looking at the material and, you know, people say, oh, you must have had lots of different films in that 670 hours. And sometimes documentary filmmakers will say, well, there were many films. We chose one. In this case, there was really only one. Hmm. And every time we looked at the material, every time the story changed, Michael was in the room and he said something interesting about a shift. And we're like, wait, there's a Michael beat here and there's a Michael beat here. And we started to lay out as filmmakers will, you know, little sticky notes on a big wall. And it just was really clear that the story arc that we wanted to tell was best reflected in his journey. And it is. So, so the audience knows who Michael Shulin is and why you, because the film is um, entitled the The Outsider is based on him, and obviously. So tell the audience a little bit about why he was considered the outsider and why you again why he was so. Compelling, compelling, you know, to uh, follow and watch. So so Michael is in some ways a a not terribly surprising New York character. He's a wannabe author. He had a little shop in the village. And on the day of 9-11, he put up a photograph on the window of his shop and people started coming by and putting their photographs on the window of his shop. And so he moved the the shop a bit was empty at the time. And so he began this little gallery and some of your listeners will will know it's a very famous story. It's called Here is New York. And it became the world's first crowdsourced photo exhibit. And literally the images were everything from professional photographers down to amateurs. And and he was, along with two of his partners, the, the crafter of this soothing, very important moment in the days after New York, of, of the World Trade Center attacks. Um, years later, he was approached about joining this now nascent museum and they hired him and they gave him the title creative director. And I met him, I think, on his third day at work. And he came up to me and he said, you're making the film about this thing, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you better interview me quick because I'm not going to be here long. And 
I know how to take clear instructions. I was like, we set up an interview for the next day and we sat down, we did an interview with him. And I think he never entirely knew why they hired him. I think he never exactly stood his role, but he stayed from the day that they broke ground at the World Trade Center until the day that Barack Obama cut the ribbon. He he stayed the whole time. And um, that role of creative director evolved as did he, um, but not in a particularly positive way. And what do you mean by that exactly? Um, he arrived. I mean, he's a rabble rouser. He's a troublemaker. He's a he's not a museum person. And so he came to make a different kind of museum. And what he was hired to do and what we heard was this was going to be an open museum, a museum of ideas. We would people would be able to come in and form their own conclusions. There would be lots of information about 9-11, but there would be no hard put firm. This is what happened. And here's why it matters. It wasn't going to be didactic. And over time, that changed. And the way he describes it is it began as a museum of question marks, and it ended up being a museum of periods. And, you know, as a filmmaker, as filmmakers, my wife and I, I think, felt like, and we talked to historians who said to us, it's too soon to be putting periods on these sentences. You know, history isn't you can't say this is what happened at, at World War II. This is what like these things take time and they need to. Ge- and so we came to believe and Michael wasn't the only one that was concerned about kind of simplistic conclusions being drawn at this museum. So with that, um, what did you find the most difficult about filming this? Because you, you, I mean, you've got all these interesting people that are involved in this, and we'll get into each one of these people that um, were actively involved in creating this museum. Um, so, what was the most difficult part of the filming for you? All right, let me let me give you and your listeners kind of an inside baseball answer that I don't usually tell to non-film people. Um, Over the course of six and a half, seven years, we had 35 different videographers work on the project. And it was a very, it was as low budget as you can be. It's essentially a no budget film. So, you know, we had a single camera with a shotgun mic and one wireless mic. We had no audio guy. So these camera people would be, you know, on Monday morning, we would get a list of all the meetings that were going on that week. And we would assign various filmmakers to cover different scenes. Um, Two problems with that. One, they were of different skill level. So some had better audio skills. Some got a little nervous and they'd want to hide in the back of the room. Others would get right inside the scene and really shoot close up. And so we, we, we were always kind of trying to make sure that we were getting some consistency in the look and feel of the shooting. But the other thing is, the footage would come back. We had this great little Sony camera that recorded on, on drives, on little cards, and on high eight video. And so the camera crew would come back. They'd hand us the cards. The, the, the videotapes would go in the vault, and the cards would be transferred to a great big tower. And they would be, and you'd glance it. You'd go, was the audio okay? How, you, you, it was an hour long shoot. You'd maybe look at three minutes of it. And so, Oftentimes, it was hard to direct the film because there were things going on with our various characters that weren't necessarily being screened in real time. And I tell people to this day with 670 hours of footage, there are still things that surprise me. 
I'm like, wow, we didn't. In fact, there's a scene in the movie, which I can tell you about that. We didn't even discover and know we had until about three weeks before fine cut deadline. Which scene was that one? It was the scene about the, in which the museum team is watching a screening of a film that plays in the museum called the rise of Al Qaeda. And, and the film is very controversial. They didn't allow anyone to see it. You can't find it on YouTube. It's like, it's almost impossible to find if you're not a, a museum visitor. And we were like, oh, my God, we've got a clip. We didn't know we had a clip. Um, but but it made this, I mean, it was less of a director's film on the day-to-day basis and more we're going to observe our characters mm-hmm. and we're going to be pretty disciplined about not getting distracted by other interesting characters. We, we picked five at the beginning and they all had the good fortune of staying employed through the end. Uh, Cause that's always bad when, that's, yeah, when yeah. they <laughs> don't. Um, uh, and, and it wasn't really until we got into the edit room that the film started to come together. I was going to say, okay, so with all of that footage, what was the editing process like for you, Stephen? Because I would think that would be absolutely daunting, you know, having that much it w- footage. It was, Lily, not pulling any punches here. It was horrible. Okay. I mean, it was, um, a- and in fact, the other thing that made it horrible is that you'd, like, the thing about 9-11 as a subject is every single potential audience member has a different feeling about it. Mm-hmm. If you lived in New York and you were here during those days, it's horrible in ways that make it almost unwatchable. If you were in Europe or in California or in the Midwest and you watched it on TV, you felt differently. If you're 22 years old today and you only saw some clips on the internet, like so, so you would watch it one day and go, a rough cut, and you'd be like, this is, we just got it. This is perfect. And then you'd show it to someone and they go, oh, that, I, that's boring or that's horrible. You're like, Which one, boring or horrible? Well, it's kind of both. It's horrible and boring. And so it really took, yeah, I mean, it took a lot of, of kind of coaxing out of the material, um, the beats that were the right mix of human and compelling and a little subtle and a little quiet. And there's a couple of scenes in particular um, that are very hard to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we did a screening, a private screening last week with a bunch of family members and I have to tell you, I was terrified. Um, I thought they were going to be angry at the film. I thought they were going to be angry at us. We were very careful at the beginning. Pam and I both said, this may be too hard. There may be things in it that make you uncomfortable to take you back to it. Like, please, please, this is what we did it on Zoom. Please feel free to shut off the camera, or shut off the Zoom if you can't, you know. And then we pressed play. We waited. And we kept waiting for the, and then it ended and the 15 people that had joined us at the beginning were all there at the end. Um, and the one woman who ran, who was the leader of this group, took a deep breath and she said, I, we've, I've just one thing to say. And uh, I, I held my ears and she said, thank you. Oh, I just got I like, chills. Uh, she said, this film needed to be made and we, we, we hoped that you had made it. And she said there were parts of it that were very hard, but it was very truthful and we really appreciated it. Wow. Well, you know, no, no greater compliment than that. None. You know. Still, still, still dining out on that little moment. Because, yeah. I mean, it wasn't made for family members. It wasn't made for survivors. And when you, ta- when you handle, I mean, 
there are very few moments in American history that every American has a feeling about. You know, I mean, I watch the Vietnam War Memorial, the Vietnam films that are on, you know, Netflix, and I watch them, but but I don't have personal pain from that time. So I can watch them a little objectively and think, boy, I, you know, this this film is going, there's, there's no one in your audience that won't have an opinion about this film. This is true. And this is very, very true. I... Uh, at the t- when 9-11 happened, I was living in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, three weeks later, I was going to New York to do a TV show. And uh, so I went down to Ground Zero. And it, it's, to this day, it, even three weeks later, it, you know, when you're looking and it's all that dust in the store, I took pictures of some of it. And you go, this is somebody's remains, someone's ashes that we're looking at and that we're walking through. It was just so eerie, um, such an eerie time. And people were starting so, to... So, go ahead. So we, you, and I, you and I share something that very few people share. And your listeners will not understand this, but I'm just going to say it to you. The smell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, you live, if you smell that smell, you'll never forget it as long as you live. Exactly. It exactly. Burned for 100 days. Kyle burned for 100 days. So, so I think the question I would ask you, I mean, this film has been in some form of post-production for four or five years. And when it got to be the 20th anniversary, we struggled with, is this going to be an anniversary, a somber anniversary? Is it going to be an anniversary of remembrance? Will people be, again, angry at us for raising these issues? Does it seem too soon? And, you know, there's a... my dear departed friend D.A. Pennybaker said to me once, I think he said this actually a lot, but I remember him saying it to me. He said, you know, films aren't completed, they're abandoned. Hmm. And this film was ready to be, like, it need, I, we couldn't noodle it anymore. It had to be finished. And I think we still don't know, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're releasing the film much earlier than any of the other 9-11 films that are going to be out there. And we did that purposefully and, and thoughtfully because we wanted to be on the pointy end of the story. We wanted to lead the conversation, not follow the conversation. And you're definitely, you're definitely doing that. No question. There's so many, as I said, this film has, you know, its own tension and everything as you go through it because there were so many different opinions about uh, how to go about creating this museum memorial and the different obviously all the different people you had to, they had to deal with you know the the families and of the uh, you know of the fallen and and whatnot so wh- you you followed Alice Greenwald who's the museum director who uh, we'll talk a little bit about her but Lou Mendez and Jan Ramirez I want to talk about Jan Ramirez because yeah let's just talk about her and what her role was and what she did because I think she had you know her job was just so difficult I mean, they all were. There's not one person who didn't have a difficult job in this. But hers was, um, I feel, more emotional than some, you know, what she does Jan, as a curator. Jan has more compassion than any other human being I've ever met. She's amazing. And it's not even a close number two. Um, she spent every day and still works at the museum as, of, as we speak, uh, you know, listening to families who would bring to her this cherished shoe or hat or glove or firefighter and and would and she would very gently need to convince them that 
she would care for this object. She that it would go into the collection that it would, you know, and, and you know, family members would all want to know that their loved one's ha- helmet, fireman's helmet, is going to be in a place of prominence. And you can't promise that if you're a museum curator, because mm-hmm. it might very well go into a storage container. And so it required her being uh, extraordinarily connected with them emotionally. And in you know, many ways, I think she's as much a, a therapist as she is a curator. Um, no, I, I uh, and I love her last words in the film. No one's going to remember our name. Yeah, it's not about us. Right. Uh, uh, no, she's a very special person. Very, and she started collecting things right away. She did. She broke the cardinal rule. Of, so historians have this rule. So the reason why the diary of Anne Frank remains, and all the other ditches from that era, all of the other papers and notes and letters have is because there is a belief in among historians that time kind of is a natural filter. So, so, you know, it wasn't like someone looked at a hundred diaries and picked the Anne Frank diary and lifted it up. It, it kind of was the, the last person standing of a dot object. So Jan broke that rule. And the day of nine 11, she was working at the New York historical society. Um, and she went out and started collecting objects. And the one that's the most memorable in the film is she saw this bike rack (sighs) and it was abandoned. All these bikes were locked to this bike rack. And she immediately understood that every one of those bicycles represented a person. And most probably they all died. They were delivery people. They were different kinds of bicycles. It was kind of before New York was a bikeable city. So it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like, a, you know, an executive was biking to work. Uh, but the bike rack was a really powerful way to remember all of the lives that stopped at that moment without it having to be gruesome. And that bike rack, she she shepherded it and cared for it and moved it forward with great passion through, you know, complex New York City logistics to get. And that bike rack is in the museum today. Absolutely amazing. Just that, that she would think about the bank bike rack in that moment. Right. That would be something yeah. that would be important to this. There's so many things. Um, let's talk about Lou Mendez, who was um, in charge of design and construction, but just about his story, because he was there, um, or right after it happened, or right before. So let's talk a little bit, little bit about Lou, because he was also a very interesting uh, character in this film. So Lou is a big guy. He's like a big, broad-shouldered, kind of Dems and Does New Yorker. He's a construction guy. And he literally was down. He managed all of the rescue and recovery operations for the city of New York uh, for months. All the cranes and lights and, you know, horrible, horrible, difficult job. And then came back and said, now I want to build something on the site. And um, he's he's in some ways uh, like us from central casting if you were to call central casting and say i need a new yorker uh, <laughs> yes. they would send you lou or his you know his prodigy uh uh i love lou i and, and the thing about him is it's easy to underestimate him because he's gruff and a little short-tempered and pounds the table but he's also incredibly brilliant and keeps in his head millions and millions of dollars of expenditures. And I just have one story that isn't in the film. He was on the phone one day in his office and he was talking to a contractor and it was something. And he was, well, how long, how long is that going to take? Or, well, but I need it. To, like, this is the death. And then he hung the phone up 
And he looked at me and he goes, well, that cost me a million dollars. And it did. It was a million. He, he needed to authorize overtime to get something done in time. But he, you know, he was, he's a, he's a brilliant construction engineer manager and uh, he's a great part of the film. Yes. And it's a, it was a daunting task, um, obviously yeah. to create this. Um, Alice Greenwald, who was the museum, is the museum director. I don't, um, Talk a little bit about her and how she kind of came like a little bit of the nemesis with Michael Shulin, how, you know, their relationship. So, again, back to doing inside baseball for filmmaker fans, <laughs> you know, you pick characters and you really never know how they're going to evolve. So, you know, and and when you're with someone for a really long time, you know, generally speaking, there's this phrase filmmakers use, which is like if you're if you're backstage long enough, the band, they think you're with the band. And I mean, we were with these people for six years. So there was no line of this. We weren't wearing a big press tag that said, don't speak honestly in front of these people. They have a camera. Our arrangement with the museum was that everything we recorded would be kept confidential until one year after opening day. And so we weren't going to be, there was no chance of anything ending up in the newspaper. Um, Alice came from the Holocaust Museum, mm-hmm. um, what is um, on an out, very outgoing, very warm, very open, um, listens to everyone, make sure everyone has a chance to have their say. Um, but what I think we learned maybe in retrospect is while the meetings were very open and participatory, the actual decisions would then happen and kind of get transmitted back like the director has said or the director wants us to do. So I, I think it's a fair question whether or not the museum design and construction process was collaborative or was maybe a little bit more of a pantomime of a collaborative experience. Um, and, and one of our, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know that that's a criticism as much as it's an observation. Interesting, interesting. Well, I, I do have this question for you too. That You um, said you felt maybe the terrorists have won after all all 20 years later why why did you feel that so at the risk of getting myself in trouble Mm -hmm. um, because that phrase has all kinds of political consequences you know if you accept as the basis that the terrorists plan was to do something that would damage the heart of america that it would you know that, that it would attack our multiculturalism it would attack our democracy it would attack our free speech um and Michael Chulin says this, uses this phrase that the museum ended up angry with us about, but he calls the day of 9-11 in some ways a terrible beauty. And the images of those towers are etched in our brain. You know, if you had to come up with a strategy to damage the soul of America, you would want to attack it in a way that is almost unforgettable and makes us feel vulnerable and mm-hmm. uh, creates a sense of nationalism and, and belligerence. And so as we came to the end of the filming process, and as I've learned now since the film has been completed, um, the museum is, in fact, a fairly closed place and doesn't really allow free speech and doesn't really allow you to explore their material in a very open way. And I think that certainly would suit the terrorists. Probably, um, probably. And we that, have, we have, even, but just to be clear, even saying that out loud, like, hurts my heart. Mm-hmm. I know it. Yeah. 
I have about 20 seconds. Tell people where they can find The Outsider. Where can they watch it? The Outsider is going to premiere on uh, on August 19th. It will be worldwide in 2.8 billion homes. It'll be the first Facebook premiere. It's ticketed at $3.99, which is as inexpensive as we could make it. We are going to do a charitable donation for a big chunk of that ticket sale, which I won't be able to tell you yet. But the URL is theoutsider.film. You can click there and go straight. You can buy the tickets today. Facebook is pre-selling them. And uh, we hope everyone will attend. And we look forward to a frothy conversation after the film. Great, Stephen. Well, thank you for being on the show. I wish you much success with The Outsider. And yeah, everybody seek it out and go uh, go find it. Go watch it. It's it's really fascinating. Yeah, love the podcast and love that you have filmmakers like uh, uh, myself and my wife on to talk about their work. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you. It's my, my pleasure. It's my passion to do this. So thank you. If you have missed any of the Jam Price shows all about movies, you can go to thejampriceshow.com where all the shows are archived. And you can also go to the iHeart Podcast Network, Apple, Google, iTunes, YouTube, wherever, smart TVs, wherever you get your favorite podcasts, you can find us. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Jam Price Show. Thank you all for listening. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. 